Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Coming up on golf today, we have the Open champ, Lefty Brian Harmon, live from Memphis. Is he rested and ready for the playoffs after winning the Open? And where is he keeping that claret jug? Lucas Glover will stop by as well, fresh off his win at the Wyndham, from overcoming the yips to winning in front of his kids. Lucas covers all ahead of the playoffs. And Alex Fitzpatrick keeps playing great golf, a top 20 at the Open and a win on the Challenge Tour, and now a conversation with us. Let's give him something to talk about on Golf Today. Golf Today. Tuesday and it's golf today. Damon Hack alongside Eamon Lynch, Golf Week Magazine. Can you believe it? We're just a couple of days away from the playoffs. We've seen some ups, some downs, some rain, some tears. The playoffs are almost here. Last week we kept talking about the bubble boys endlessly for days and the reward for those bubble boys, they get to be the weak links at the back of the pack <laughs> this week, Damon, because only 50 of these 70 are making it to the BMW next week. That's right. And also the final major championship of 2023. And we'll probably see some weather, since it is in the mm. United Kingdom, along the same levels that we saw actually at Royal Liverpool for the, the Open Championship. Brian Harmon, who will actually be joining us shortly on the show as well. Yeah, and you know, earlier this year, I think one of my bold predictions was that Rose Zhang will win a major championship. So this is the week that it has to happen. This is your last chance saloon. <laughs> this week is the final major for the 2023 LPGA Tour season. The women head to Walton Heath Golf Club near London for the AIG Women's Open. You can catch first round coverage here live at 6 a.m. Eastern time on USA Network on Thursday. And speaking of Rose Zhang, she's played in three majors since turning pro and she has proven she more than belongs. Three starts, three top nine finishes with her best finish being at Baltusrol in the KPMG Women's PGA Championship. But it's time now to meet the press with Rose Zhang. In the majors that I've played in so far this year, uh, it's been pretty incredible to um, just be able to compete as a professional. Um, last year and the last couple years, I've been able to have somewhat of an experience uh, as an amateur in playing these major championships, and I knew how hard and how grueling every single week is. So taking that into consideration, um, making sure I'm preparing my body, making sure that I'm going out there and having a really good strategy uh, has allowed me to commit to my game when I'm out there playing. And um, by no doubt, 
no doubt it's it's really hard to be out there and you know that it's a big event but keeping yourself in composure and in your stride is uh, something that I've done well in the last three events. This is not the first time I played in England. Um, I believe, actually it might be. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think this is my first time playing in England. Uh, I played in Scotland a lot uh, in the previous events, Glen Eagles, um, Carnoustie, but yeah, I, I guess this is my first time and it's my first time seeing Heather, so um, it's definitely a new new little obstacle for me and uh, looking at the golf course. How, how are you judging the lie? Are you, are you um, practicing quite a lot or are you just trying to avoid it? <laughs> Ideally, um, I've been trying to avoid it, but I've hit a couple shots out of there. Um, the most you can do is pretty much punch out. Um, it'll have to be an insanely good lie in order for you to even slightly go forward at the green. Um, so it's more so just taking a wedge and whacking it out of there. <laughs> and Rose Zhang, alongside a two-time major champ in Brooke Henderson and the defending champ Ashley Buhai, who will join us a little bit later on Golf Today. It was just a few weeks ago when Brian Harmon became a first-time major champ in the Open at Royal Liverpool, fired that final round 70 in rainy conditions to cruise, we can say cruise, to a six-shot victory and claim the Claire Jug, but you know it was hard work. How about lefties to win the Open? Only three so far, the Kiwi, Bob Charles, 1963 Royal Lytham in St. Anne's, Phil Mickelson a decade ago at Muirfield, and Brian Harmon, Georgia Bulldog, earlier this year. Year. Now, Brian Harmon went to Instagram on Monday, hard saying goodbye to my four babies. Three kids plus the Claret Jug. Time to get back to work. Hashtag playoffs. And Brian Harmon joins us now, the champion golfer of the year in Memphis. Great to see you, Brian. Listen, we've heard great stories about the Claret Jug through the years. Red wine, cold beer, dented on driving ranges. What's the coolest thing that's happened so far with you and the Claret Jug? Uh, I think uh, maybe taking it down and, and uh, riding around with it on my tractor for a little while. I don't know if it, Claire Jug's ever been inside a tractor. <laughs> Brian, this is your first start, obviously, since the Open Championship. Do you feel a little extra weight of pressure, more eyeballs on you when you walked into TPC Southwind today? Well, luckily, I haven't, uh, I, I haven't done a lot of golf in the last couple of weeks. Been been kind of taking it all in, so my expectations are pretty low, but... I'm really excited to get back to work. Um, obviously, last time out, I had a great, great outing, and, and I, I love this place. I love Memphis, and I'm excited for the playoffs. Brian, we hear that winning major championships changes lives. How do you keep the status quo? I mean, you want to get better, but you don't want to, like, change what got you. You don't want to change, a, you know, change the girl that you brought to the dance, so to speak. Well, that's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm 36. I'm, I'm pretty set in my ways now. I got three kids to keep me honest, so I don't foresee things changing a whole lot. But I'm just really content to, to try and see how good I can get and, and trying to get my game in as good a shape as I possibly can. Brian, you've been playing really well for about a month before you went to England. I'm curious, did you expect to win? I know when you ask players at an elite level, they all say, I'll go there with one goal, which is to win. But deep down, did you think you could walk away with the Claret Jug going over there? 
I certainly always thought that I had the capability, but uh, you just even the the other victories I've had, I, I've never show up to a week like, oh, I'm definitely going to win this week. I just, but I had a really sense of uh, a good sense of my process, and and I felt really comfortable all week. So uh, I did a really nice job of just staying in the moment and not letting it, you know, not getting too far out ahead of myself. You'd had the 54-hole lead in the U.S. Open at Aaron Hills back in 2017. You ended up finished tied for second behind Brooks Kepka. Was there anything you learned that day that came into play in your mind on Sunday at Toy Lake? Yeah, for sure. I, I hardly slept uh, that night in 2017. I think I looked at my phone a little too much. I was a little too concerned about all the noise that was going on. Whereas this time I could kind of, you know, seclude myself a little bit. I got some good sleep and... I woke up, you know, really excited for the opportunity and not feeling like it was, um, I don't want to call it a burden in 17, but I felt like the weight of it was, was probably too much for me to handle at the time. Brian, speaking of noise, you faced some pretty strong heckling, especially over the weekend. I know you're a fan of SEC, Georgia football. You're not unfamiliar with booing and heckling, but where do you draw the line? Where should that line be drawn in terms of heckling golfers as they go about their business? Um, for me, it's just you have to respect my turn. Uh, you can say whatever you want to me. Uh, it's, it's, it's not going to bother me, but, but I think everyone deserves their, their chance, a fair shot at it. So when it's my turn to play, you know, when I'm over the ball, when I'm getting ready to hit a shot, I, I think people need to be respectful then. Well, the heckler who told you you didn't have what it takes to win the Open seemed to motivate you. Do, do you play with a chip on your shoulder? Well, I've never been a, a big guy. I've always, you know, even in the other sports, I was always undersized for whatever position I played. So I've always had to carry that little extra, you know, like you can call it a chip on my shoulder, just a little extra want to. So uh, it certainly translates to golf, and, and I owe a lot of my grit to that. Brian, I have a buddy who goes to Sea Island every year. He says he sees you. You're never on the driving range. He says you're always at the short game area or the practice putting green. We saw that aspect of your game really pay off at the open is that true how much do you balance you know just mindlessly hitting balls versus actually kind of honing that those wedges in particular well it's hard because my favorite thing to do is to mindlessly hit balls so <laughs> it takes a lot of discipline and and uh justin parsons did a nice job we had a conversation a few years back uh we found out that i was actually losing shots around the green so uh we had to double down on our preparation and, and come up with some new ways to motivate me to work on my short game. I'd always just kind of assume, like, oh, well, I've got a good short game. I don't really need to work on it. And uh, we doubled down on that and uh, saw the results of that come pretty quickly. And so I've, I've stuck with that throughout. Brian, you mentioned Justin Parsons, your swing coach. I swapped texts with Justin last night, who's obviously been able to help you more than he was able to help me. But he told me to ask you about the missing putting <laughs> mirror in Scotland. What's the story behind that? Ah, uh, uh, Justin's going to toot his own horn. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a very forgetful, uh, I, I kind of have a one-track mind, and I left that putting mirror. I'd been using it every day uh, since the U.S. Open, and, and uh, I left it on the putting green, uh, I guess it would have been Thursday night at the Scottish, and I sent him on a wild goose chase, uh, and he found it. Someone had it in an office somewhere, and I kept it safe for me, so... So, so at least a little bit of the credit from the Open Championship putting has to go to Justin Parsons. You're welcome, Justin. <laughs> Kick, save, and a beauty. 
Brian, these are special times for you, arriving to a tournament, you know, fresh off of winning your first major championship, reception from your peers, pats on the back, slugs to the shoulder. What have you gotten so far? Uh, it's just the, the support's been fantastic. I, I think that, you know, we've got a pretty nice fraternity out here, and guys understand what it takes to, to sleep on leads and try to win big golf tournaments. And, and I, I know that, that, that they're happy for me, but I know that they're trying to beat me too, and, and we all have a healthy respect for each other. We just saw your Instagram post where you talked about leaving the four babies, the three kids and the claret jug. Did you actually leave the jug at home, or are you taking it out there to parade it around the range and let these guys remember what you did? <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't need to give these guys any extra motivation to want to beat me. I, I, I keep all my accomplishments close to the vest. I don't, I don't, like, uh, you know, I don't like parading it around. Um, I'm, I'm very proud of it, but at the same time, uh, I've got a lot of golf left in front of me. I'm excited for these playoffs, so I'm ready to get back to work. One more for you, Brian. That claret jug can perfectly contain sure. one bottle of wine should you choose lemonade, beer, red wine, Sauvignon Blanc. That's Eamon's favorite. What is going in that jug? There's been a variety of things in and out of that. We've had Guinness, uh, Coors Light. I think some Buffalo Trace made it inside an airplane one time. So we're, uh, we're, we're all about the variety. Variety is the spice of life, Brian. Congratulations and best of luck in the playoffs as well. Thank y'all so much. I appreciate y'all having me. The Georgia Bulldog, champion golfer of the year. And he yeah. should enjoy whatever he wants in that Claire Joe. I can't believe he's not out there parading that thing around the town square just to remind guys, you know what? I won the last major of the year. Yeah, but that's not a very Georgia Bulldog. Now, he, he's a bully. It's back to work. I, I think, you know what I think? He's going to have a short memory. Like, he, he's already itching to get back to work. Doesn't strike me as someone who's going to rest on his laurels You at think all. it would take the edge off too much, a guy like Brian Harmes? Because he's a feisty guy. He is. I, I think he's already trying to find ways, I imagine, to... To be motivated in, in his answer to you about I've been doubted, you know, I've been small my whole life, undersized, maybe a little bit, you haven't seen him coming, that type of guy. I, I think he will quickly be able to get back to work, put that claret jug on the shelf, and try to find some new goals in this game. And he's crafty and that he doesn't want to give motivation to the other guys. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly right. Uh, well, with given the millions of dollars at stake over the next mm. few weeks, I don't think they need any more motivation in this game. And coming up next, the FedEx Cup playoffs, obviously beginning this week in Memphis, and we're going to hear from the man that everyone else is chasing at the top of the standings. That's John Ram. Stay with us. And we're back on golf today. The FedEx Cup playoffs begin this week in Memphis as the tour heads to TPC Southwind for the FedEx St. Jude Championship. Live first round coverage is on Golf Channel Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Let's take a look at the FedEx Cup standings, the top 10. Why are these men smiling? Because they're in the top 10. And for much of this season, John Rahm has sat right there, number one in the FedEx Cup standings. And I love to smile about this season for John Rahm. He won the Masters for his second major title, four victories in all. Also finished runner-up a couple of times and 10 total top 10 finishes. And for more on our FedEx Cup leader, we're heading out to Memphis to say hello to Kira K. Dixon. 
Well, Eamon, it's a bit of a dreary day here today in Memphis, but there is nothing dreary about John Rahm or his mood coming into this week. As you guys mentioned, he's number one in the FedEx Cup standings. We also haven't seen him since the Open Championship. He's had a couple of weeks off, so I caught up with him this morning on what that time off has been like and his thoughts on the continued changes on the PGA Tour. Well, uh, if jet lag is hard for adults, you should know how hard it is for kids. So God bless my wife. Um, <laughs> Trying to trying to deal with that and you know practice and recovery just a little bit of that right it's uh, it's hot everywhere in the U.S. hot in Arizona so adapting the schedule to be able to practice and, and maximize my time at home right so mm -hmm. it's it's a bit of rest recovery and maintenance in all aspects so uh, it was great it was a lot of a lot of fun those last two weeks uh, Saturday we got to enjoy Neko's first birthday so uh, you know there was a lot of things to look look forward to um, it was it was quite enjoyable to have those you know two weeks off like that and at the end of the season, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Also, since you mentioned it, speaking of the schedule, the PGA Tour announced a new-look schedule for 2024. I know that playing in Spain and playing in Europe has always been a big priority for you as well. Uh, have you had a chance to kind of dive into to the schedule, and what are your reactions to what's been announced? It's, I think uh, it's got a little bit better cadence to it this year than this coming year than, than this year, right? Obviously, it came up. They had to come up with it pretty quickly in this coming year with the signature events and and uh, every other event. There's a bit more time in between, so you can kind of rest throughout the year and have, uh, again, a little bit better rhythm to it than maybe this year. Uh, at least it fits what I've been doing a little bit better than in the past. Um, now with DP World, uh, we'll see how they adapt for us to be able to play events, but I think it's going to be the same for me than it's been the last few years. You know, be mainly PJ Tour January till August, and then try to play those few events in Europe. Uh, obviously, I'll always go to the Spanish Open and DP World Tour Championship if I qualify. So uh, it all depends on where Wentworth Falls, Irish Open, other events that I really enjoy going to. Um, but it'll be mainly be a, a fall thing for me. So change has very much been the theme of the last year. It seems like it probably will for next year. Uh, you've been a big part of those changes. You were part of the group of players that requested a certain amount of changes from the PGA Tour. Now Tiger Woods is on the policy board. Uh, even this week we're seeing you know, from 125 to 70. Where are you at emotionally <laughs> with all of these changes and everything that's been happening over the last year? Uh, emotionally, I mean, I'm, I, I can't say I'm in a bad spot, obviously. Uh, you know, I can't say, I can say selfishly, it's going to be very nice to go to these events in Europe and then go to Maui and know that I'm not a thousand points behind somebody already. That was always a challenge. Um, but we think it's, it's the change for the better of the PGA Tour, right? I think it's nice to have a break, even though this event's going on, there's a break on the FedEx Cup. It didn't sit right to announce the winner, and then 10 days later you have a brand new leader. Right? That just never sat right with me. Um, and you make it make make it into the playoffs a bit more for premium, right? Uh, only 70 players make it, and then even within then you gotta finish it off to then get into that top 50 to be playing into into the signature events for next year, right? So um, there's a little bit more to play for now in those final weeks of the year. There was quite a bit of drama last week. Uh, I'm not gonna lie, it's one of my favorite events to watch because you know you get some people who come in and and do some special things. Uh, with Justin almost chipping in on 18, like he almost did to to qualify, uh, you know. You never want to see a big name uh, be having to fight for that, but it is part of what we've been doing this year, um, you know, giving a little bit more excitement. So uh, it's, again, what we believe is going to be better for the future. Mm -hmm.
And speaking of things to play for at the end of the season, uh, a lot on the line for you, you know, potential to win a FedEx Cup, potential to continue to make your case for player of the year. How do those things rank for you in terms of your priorities for a season? Well, listen, there's a lot There's a lot to be playing for, right? There's, um, there's still three weeks before you, you can think about really anything else, right? So hopefully I can... Uh, I can keep playing well, give myself chances to win this week and next week. Uh, I've played well on this golf course, obviously. Uh, last time I went to Olympic Fields, I have pretty good memories of that one as well. So I can arrive to East Lake in the number one position with, uh, with a little bit of two-shot cushion and give myself the best chance to win it. Well, John did mention that his main focus is the golf, but there is a bit of tour business to be addressed. Uh, Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA Tour, will be hosting a player meeting here tonight in Memphis at 5 p.m. that John Rahm plans to attend. He plans to go in with his usual desire to just listen and learn. He told me that over the past year, he's made a conscious decision not to over-involve himself in some of the more in-depth political discussions, and he said that he thinks that that policy has very much shown in his results over the season, and he will continue that policy as he looks to win the FedEx Cup come the end of the playoffs in three weeks. Fascinating conversation with John Rahm. He's always a pretty good interview. Thank you so much, Kira. Well, there's something else John Rahm said earlier today, Damon, in his press conference meeting the media that I think is worth listening to. is about the future of Jay Monaghan. Let's listen in. Considering everything that's happened over the past two months, do you think Jay Monahan should keep his job? I think I made my stance on that at the open um, clear. Uh, I think he should have the opportunity right now to to finish this off the way he did. I think uh, we're quickly forgetting how well he managed a lot of things. Uh, he did an amazing job in COVID and kept a lot of people employed. We were the first major sport to come back. I know UFC was doing fights, but we were the major sport to come back. And, you know, a lot of players were able to earn their cards and keep competing thanks to that. So I think we shouldn't forget that that quickly. And again, we should give him the chance to see this through, right? Um, and then after everything's said and done, if players want to make a change, then that should, would be a better time. But right now, I don't think it is. I like the question, though. I was a little concerned when he had that long pause that maybe he was going to ask uh, for his resignation. I think that in this time, Jay Monahan, the more time he's able to let this initial wave of discord pass, the better off for him. How do you see it? Temporarily so. I mean, there were a couple of caveats there when John Ram was talking. He said he should be given the chance to finish it off, mm. the chance to see it through. And it would seem based on even if you look at Tiger Woods' statement last week when he said that Jay Monaghan has his confidence going forward with the changes that he made, which, of course, implied that he didn't necessarily have that confidence right. before the changes were made. It's become very clear that Jay's in the pilot seat on the PGA Tour, but air traffic control of the players yep. who are sitting behind him. They're now really driving this thing forward. They've decided what they want. Jay Monaghan's job to carry that out. But when John Ram talks about seeing this through, finishing this off, He's talking about what is the outcome of this potential framework agreement or deal yeah. with the Saudi Investment Fund. And that's really where the rubber hits the road for Jay Monaghan. I don't think he's out of the woods with the players because he's so invested so much of his stature and, and goodwill and reputation and, and player equity in this deal that if it doesn't happen, then I think Jay Monaghan is finished as commissioner of the PGA Tour. That's not something that's going to become very clear 
for months down the road. If Jay Monaghan delivers this deal and the players are happy with it, yeah. well then it's back to business as usual. But so much hangs on whether or not this deal that Jay Monaghan has invested so much of himself in and, and his board members have invested in, if that doesn't happen, it's a different scenario. I think you're right. And to continue with the analogy, I think they're not quite ready to land this plane. They're still at 36,000 feet and there's still some turbulence ahead as well. Trying to get everybody on the same page, the PJ Tour membership, that's going to be a very difficult thing to do. It's a lot of turbulence in that plane. A lot of guys who want to fly first class as well. Dan. No question about it. Speaking of first class, it was a first class effort from Lucas Glover. Fresh off his big win in Greensboro, which vaulted him into the FedEx Cup playoffs. What's it like getting back in the winner's circle? We'll find out next on Golf Today. And Lucas Glover joins us now in Memphis. Lucas, congratulations. Winning is cool, but you have a, a memory for a lifetime with your kids. What was Sunday evening like with you? Um, busy, obviously. But uh, since we uh, finished so late because of the delay, it was, uh, it was a quick turnaround to get everybody back to the room, fed and, uh, and asleep um, with the kids and then uh, try to figure out flights to here. So it was, uh, it was, it was busy, but it was uh, for a good reason, obviously. Lucas, your kids look pretty pumped that the old man still had some game. It must have been pretty special to deliver with your kids there to watch it. Yeah, it was great. That was the first time they'd, uh, they'd been able to do that. Um, very special. Uh, they, some people have asked me where that ranks uh, as far as my victories, and I think it's number one just because of that. Um, they, uh, they were uh, at the deer until Sunday morning and then had to, had to fly home uh, for some, some uh, previous uh, plans. But this week they were, or last week they were able to stay the whole time. So uh, for them to be able to do that and, and share it with me was, was extra special. Lucas, we see the end result, but we don't see the quiet, frustrating moments. You said you had to rewire your brain to learn how to putt again. What was the aha moment where you felt that you were wielding the putter the way you wanted to and you finally said, you know what, I've got it now? Um, well, I think we've seen in this game, if you, if you ever say that, uh, you're probably going down the wrong direction. But it was, uh, it was definitely something that... Uh, that, that woke something up and uh, just neurologically speaking, it was just a complete different brain function. And uh, um, that freed me up. No more, no more shaking, no more tremoring, no more yips. And uh, it's been a, uh, it's been a, it's been a long road, but the last six, eight weeks working with this has been uh, extremely fun and, and, and just something fun to teach myself. And, and uh, uh, it's just speaks volumes for, for, uh, for the results the last, couple months you said in your interview Sunday night Lucas that you could even remember the very specific hole where those yips first came up for you a, a decade ago most elite players would kind of put stuff like that out of their mind you seem to be very open in facing it and figuring out a way to navigate that problem why why do you take that sort of much more open direct approach to that issue well, I think with anything with any any uh, any issue we have as as people, the more you admit it, the more you're you're uh, capable of of beating it or fighting it or, you know, coming out the other end. Um, so you know it's it's just something that I've dealt with, and 
I think with working with uh, Jason Kuhn and, and dealing with it, something that uh, he's dealt with, albeit baseball, um, you know, you, you got to admit it. You got to admit it to yourself first instead of running from it, and then you can attack it. So that's been the mindset is just, you know, it, it is what it is, and I am who I am. But at the same time, I now, I'm now equipped to attack it and, uh, and beat it. You mentioned Brad Faxon as well in your post-round comments. I'm noticing when you putt, and I got like a – Amateur eye, little movement. You kind of get in there and move your body like Fax and like Brant Snedeker, like Ben Crenshaw. How much is being a little more natural in movement a, a part of how you wield the putter now? Yeah, well, I, you know, started working with Fax a year and a half ago, so two players ago, and uh, known Brad forever and, and been a big, big fan of his forever, too. But uh, that was one of the things I'd always struggled with was when I get static and, and get really still, that's when I struggled the most. So we really focused on just staying athletic and, and almost staying active in the body. And uh, I've, I've tried to keep that going even with the long putter as soon as you – Someone, someone like me, as soon as I stand too still, um, it just kind of locks everything up. So just tried to keep a constant motion, kind of a, a flow, or um, just to feel athletic and, and then just react. Well, your reward for all of the great play last week is to be on the bubble this week, Lucas. You're 49th in the FedEx Cup standings. <laughs> the top 50 make it to the BMW next week. Have you had a chance or given any thought to whatever permutations you need to keep that spot in the top 50? No, uh, this week's the same as last week, the week before, and same as eight years ago. Um, just prepare to prepare like you're, uh, you know, tied on Thursday, which we all are, and uh, try to win a tournament, and it'll stack up where it stacks up. Lucas, you've been outspoken about the 70 number. I imagine it's a talking point among you and the peers. Does 70 feel like too little? Did 125 feel like too much? Where do you stand on that number? Um, my stance hasn't changed. Last week I said it as being outside of the 70, and now I'm inside of the 70, and I feel the same. I don't feel like it's enough. Um, I've been pretty outspoken about that uh, behind closed doors, and, and last week was kind of the first time I talked about it outside the doors. But um, I just I think the playoffs are, are for everyone, and that, that keeps their card, and uh, still feel that way. And I feel like 70 is too few for uh, the elevated events. That's not going to change uh, just because I'm inside the number now. Do you feel any alteration in that is likely at the Tour, Lucas? Will you go to Jay Monaghan's player meeting tonight and, and make the point that you've made in public, or do you feel as though you've just you've said your piece and that's enough? Yeah, I made my. I, I said it in in private to uh, to some people um, earlier this year, and um, I said it last week um, in the public. So, no, I'm I'm here to to prepare and uh, uh, get ready for Thursday, so uh, I won't be at the player meeting. Um, I'll, I'm sure I'll read about it on the internet later and hear all the rumors that swirl around just like the last year and a half, so uh, I'll be out here getting ready to play. Well, Lucas, Sunday was a lot of fun to watch. I imagine even more fun to play. Congratulations. Have a great week in Memphis. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, there's going to be a lot of flexing at the Fitzpatrick family's holiday dinner this year and the younger brother will be able to hold his own. Alex Fitzpatrick just won on the European Challenge Tour at the weekend. He's with us after the break. Some notes on Ashley. Got that first LPGA win in her 221st career start. Really bounced back after losing 
a big final round. Lee became the second South African, as you mentioned, to win the women's major and joined Gary Player, Ernie Els of South Africans to win at Muirfield. And Ashley joins us now from Walton Heath. Ashley, if you wanted to, you could write a book, My Year as a Major Championship Winner. What's it been like for you? Wow, it's been an amazing year. Um, obviously, it was a whirlwind in the beginning, but um, stuff dreams are made of. I've thoroughly enjoyed my time as the ARG Women's Open champion, and uh, it was a whole lot of fun being able to take the trophy all around the world. Ashley, i got to ask you first, how often do you think back to that bunker shot on the last hole of the playoff last year? Um, every now and then when it pops up on social media, then I was like, man, you know, I, I don't think I give myself enough credit sometimes. People always say, what a shot, and I kind of downplay it a little bit. I do say, you know, the elements were in my favor, downwind, downhill. I do pride myself in being a good bunker player, so I felt I just had to kind of get about four yards on the green and let gravity do the rest. But obviously the moment made the, the challenge a lot tougher. What does it feel like this week showing up as a major champion to defend your title. Do you feel a greater weight of expectation when you walk onto the property at, at Walton Heath this week? Obviously, there's a little bit more conversation about me than I'm used to. But to be honest, it feels fantastic. Um, you know, it gives me confidence to know that I'm coming in as defending champion, to know that I won a major um, and that I'm talked about in the mix. Um, so I think it's all things that you can only hope and wish for. Ashley, a completely different golf course, different test than Muirfield one year ago. Where is your focus going into the opening round? Yeah, completely different golf course, Heathland. Um, we've had quite a bit of rain the last two weeks, so it's playing greener than I think they would have liked. The tee shots are going to be demanding. The fairways are pretty generous, but if you do miss them, you go into the heat, then there's going to be some very nasty lies. Uh, greens are also quite a lot bigger than I, than I thought they would be. So, you know, they can get some pin placements all the way at the back of the green where we could be. Yesterday I was hitting quite a few hybrids and five woods didn't even if you, if you stick in a pin all the way back. So uh, depending on how they set it up and if this weather continues, it would be nice if the course could dry out a little bit. I assume you're arriving here this week, Ashley, with a lot more confidence than you arrived at Muirfield last year. I mean, you played really well since then. You won the Australian Open at the end of last year. You won on the LPGA Tour again about six weeks ago. You've got to feel pretty good about your game. I do. Uh, as, you know, the winning ARG Women's Open last year obviously gave me the confidence to believe in myself that if I put myself in a situation and play well, I know I can win. Um, so, yeah, come on, come on. Miss Cup, but that happened last year too at the Scottish Open. I hit the ball great last week. Just got to touch up a few things. My coach is here with me, and I know that going into Thursday, if I get my fields, then hopefully I'll be in contention. Ashley, the assumption is that you, if you are a professional golfer from South Africa, you are a great bunker player. Gary Player, Ernie Els, for example. Is it in the DNA? How does it develop to be such a strength? of not just your game, but your countrymen and women as well? I have no idea, to be honest. Um, I think if you look at the majority of us, we all have pretty good smooth swings. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think it's, also it just comes from, I think about me and I've read stories that when I was younger, all I used to do is get dropped off of the course and practice my short game till it got dark. Um, and I think it's something that most of us probably grew up doing. 
You've played in a lot of pro-ams through your career. How about a tip for a high handicapper in the bunker who's struggling with his or her game? What's one thing that you see all the time out there from the high handicappers in bunkers? I feel a lot of them don't open the face enough. They get a little scared. Um, obviously, if you're a professional golfer, I really try to bounce that toe quickly through the sand, but I like to tell them, don't be scared to hit the sand. Think of hitting the sand where you want the ball to almost land, and that kind of gets them to commit to really trying to get that club down into the sand, and you know, ultimately, it's the sand that explodes the ball and makes it travel. Well, Ashley, we wish you the best of luck in your title defense this week. Thanks for the time. We'll speak to you down the road. Thanks, guys. From Ashley to Alex, Alex Fitzpatrick won the British Challenge by five, quoted Happy Gilmore, and now he gets to talk to us. How lucky is Alex, younger brother of Matthew? That conversation next on Golf Today. Alex Fitzpatrick joins us now from somewhere in the northernmost reaches of Scotland. Alex, just a few weeks ago, you were outside the top 600 in the World Golf Rankings. You're now 242nd. You're seventh on the Challenge Tour points list when the top 20 earn cards to the DP World Tour. Does it all seem to be happening a little bit fast? Um, yeah, kind of. Uh, these, these past couple of weeks have been a bit of a whirlwind for me. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I feel like I've played um, not too bad for, for a, a while now. Um, I feel like I've kind of been working fairly hard and... Um, it's just nice to see some of that hard work pay off, really. Alex, you said you're going to grind on the Challenge Tour while you're on it and work your way to get off it as quickly as possible. What does that process look like for you? Yeah, you know, I think everyone's everyone's goal is to, um, you know, move up in the tours, especially when you're first starting. Um, you know, not everyone starts on the PJ Tour, so it's, uh, it's always a grind to try and get there. But... Um, you know, I, I, all you can do is, um, you know, keep keep working hard and, and hope that the results come and, and they go your way. And um, lucky for me, these these past few weeks, everything has uh, has kind of gone my way, really. So I'm just very grateful to have these opportunities. And, uh, yeah, just going to keep trying to press forward and, and see where that takes me. You had quite a fan base following your round at Royal Liverpool a few weeks ago during the Open. Alex, you ended up tied for 17th. You were a factor for most of the week out there. What did that do for your confidence? Yeah, you know, it, it's I uh, I was speaking to my dad about this. You know, it's it's not always uh, you don't always get an opportunity to play against you know the best in the world, and um, that for me was my first opportunity to where I could kind of showcase my game um, against against the best in the world, and and I felt like I played you know I played really well and felt like I could compete, which um, I got I took a lot of confidence from that, and um, yeah. I'm, the more chances I get to compete against the best, then uh, that would be amazing. So um, I just proved to myself that if I keep working hard, hopefully I'll, uh, I'll get there someday. Well, you turned that confidence into victory by five, and I love how you celebrated. Listen to this, and then we'll comment on the other side. Hey, man, give me one of these big ones. <laughs> hey, man, give me one of these big ones. Anyone who watches uh, Happy Gilmore knows where that is from. Did that come to you right away, or were you planning that celebration? I, I must have watched Happy Gilmore a million times. And uh, and they came when I was grabbing the trophy. They came with uh, a big old check, and I was all I had in my head was that I've seen that so many times on Happy Gilmore. 
And walking to the car, my caddy was like, why don't you just throw it in there and I'll take a video of it? And I was like, well, I might as well just try and quote something from the film. So uh, I think we I think we tried to tag Adam Sandler in it, but I don't think he saw it. So I was a little disappointed. But the... Uh, yeah, it was it was pretty funny, and uh, I think I think it got quite a few views, which is uh, which is pretty funny. Alex, following the career path of a successful family member can be a double-edged sword. It can open doors, but it can add a weight of expectation and scrutiny. And obviously, Matt's always been pretty close and supportive of your career. Have there been times along the way where that kind of expectation or scrutiny has gotten you down at all? Um, I think it's you know I think it's something that I've had for. Um, you know, the past eight years now or something like that. Um, you know, uh, at the end of the day, he's my brother, which is the main thing, you know, and obviously he's an exceptional golfer. But uh, the way I see it is, you know, I'm lucky to have someone so successful and so knowledgeable about, you know, the top end of the game that I can text or call and ask um, ask anything to him, really. Um, but the way I see it is more, I'm just, you know, I'm incredibly lucky to have him as my brother. And um, I, you know, I tell him that all the time and give him calls all the time and uh, it's just nice because we've got closer when uh, as I've got older so we've been able to have these conversations and um, yeah you know it's it's never never a bad thing having a brother who's a US Open champion. Well coach Mike Walker has called you the Serena Williams of the family. I don't know how good your forehand and, and serve are but how much do you feel like your best is yet to come? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, I turned pro last year, so um, I'm only just getting used to being a professional. But um, I feel like, you know, I hopefully I have a long road ahead of me. And uh, if I keep, you know, giving myself opportunities and, and keep working hard, then I feel like hopefully at some point I'll be able to showcase, you know, my game and um, see, see where I can go with it. But um, yeah, I'm excited. You know, it's it's been a whirlwind of the past month or so. And um, I'm only hoping that it, it carries on that way well your short game is magnificent I already, I already asked Ashley Buhai for bunker help you've played in pro-ams you've seen high handicappers what's your best short game tip for me Alex uh that's a great question it depends what you struggle with if it's the shanks everything I probably can't help you but um I, I would just say I think Ashley made it I saw Ashley made a very good point of you know a lot of these amateurs are scared to either hit the sand or um, I'm almost scared of making contact with the ground, but that's not always a bad thing. I think, you know, just make sure you're making, you're trying to make solid contact each time and, um, you know, just making sure that, um, you know, the, ho the hustle isn't, isn't close to the ball at all. So uh, I chip a lot with my, with my toe down and that seems to help me. So um, maybe other people give that a try and, and see how it works for them. How much do you need him to Venmo you <laughs> after this for the lesson, Alex? What's your rate? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think for Damon, I'd start cheap, but then the more the more we continued, I'd probably charge him more. <laughs> I don't know. You start winning tournaments, your rate goes up pretty fast. I got three 12-year-olds. Life's already very, very expensive. Hey, stay warm uh, in the great north of Scotland, buddy, and best of luck. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. We've already talked to one woman today who won a major in dramatic fashion, Ashley Buhai. We're going to talk to this guy. He did the same thing back in 1983. On this week, Hal Sutton held off Jack Nicklaus at Riviera Country Club in the PGA Championships. And he's been part of a lot of indelible moments since then. And we're going to relive a few of them. Hal is up next. So it's time now for Past Champions Chat. And we're pleased to be joined by Hal Sutton. Hal, when you won in Memphis, 
back in 1985, you were really in the flush of success. You know, it was your fourth win in three years. You had another three wins within a year, but then went winless for nine years. Was is that a reminder that careers tend to go in chapters? Because I think we're all suckered into this idea that it's continuous success at this level of golf, but your career would offer evidence to the contrary. Well, uh, you know, I, I look back on that and I think I had so much early success that uh, I didn't realize what it was doing to me, really. Uh, everybody had a lot of expectations for me that uh, I, I'm not sure I had for myself, you know, and everybody needs their expectations filled. I didn't really, I thought I was playing for me, but you suddenly become playing for everybody else and they tell you what they think about it. Uh, I kind of wanted to get out of the game a little bit. Uh, I wasn't, didn't want to be as responsible to trying to create the greatness that everybody expected out of me. That may sound kind of weird, but I mean, you, you don't realize where your life is going and your life doesn't really belong to you at that point. How much control do you lose when you're winning and you're on the cover of Sports Illustrated and people are, are reading your phone who you've never even spoken to before? Uh, you lose control. Uh, you, you, uh, I wanted to go do something that I felt like I had some control over uh, and that I wasn't expected to be great at. I mean, I wanted to be average at something. I mean, I decided I wanted to be a cowboy. I started buying horses and riding horses is something that Tom Watson does now. I went through that stage 20 years ago. Uh, I just redid my trophy room. This is kind of interesting. And I put my horse stuff and uh, <coughs> pictures of all of that in the bathroom because that was the bad part of my life. And <laughs> it's kind of a, uh, a reminder that I, I went astray there. You know, I, I left what I knew how to do and tried to do something else. And, you know, the world kind of drove me to that, to be honest with you. How you were an incredible competitor, feisty as all get out. And I'm glad you mentioned Tom Watson. He used to say he hated losing more than he loved winning. Where did you kind of fit in that mindset? Well, you know, in golf, <laughs> you a big loser a lot. I mean, we're uh, – people just don't win that much. You know, I saw where Billy Mayfair just – I think he said he played eight or 900 events and, you know, you just don't win a lot, even though you play a lot of events. I think I played 600 and something events and I won 14 times. That's a pretty low percentage and you don't get the feedback uh, of being a winner. And uh, I was a competitor. My main goal was to make sure that if I got near the lead, let's not lose an opportunity realizing that I wasn't going to be near the lead all the time. So, uh, you know, I don't want to say I was accustomed to losing. I never tried to allow myself to be that. But at the same time, uh, I tried to remind myself of what was really possible. Al Brandel Chambly tells the story of being paired with you in the third round at Riviera in 2000. And you'd played the first two rounds with Tiger You'd clipped him both days, and you told Brandle that it wasn't just that you needed Tiger to know that you could beat him, but you needed to know yourself that you could beat Tiger. And then a month later, you faced him down over the final couple of days at the Players' Championship. And this was Tiger at his peak. He intimidated everyone, but he never got you, did he? 
No, he didn't. Uh, he didn't bother me. I mean, I actually love Tiger. I love the way he played. I, I watched the way he played. You know, the rest of that story was is I needed my caddy to know that we could beat him too, because I had to have not only my own confidence to do that, but I needed Freddie to remind me that we can do this. We have done this, and uh, you know. I was really, it was great that we were paired together at Riviera because I had a lot of success at Riviera. So I felt like, uh, you know, that was a good golf course for Hal Sutton. Hal, you're always going to be known for that be the right club today call with that beautiful iron into 18 at TPC Sawgrass. But I'm curious, in your mind, what is the best golf shot that you've ever hit? Well, the best golf shot I ever hit was actually in that round, but, uh, before it, if you go back and look at it, I got a shot up and down on number eight. It was the only green I missed that day. Uh, and I couldn't stand in the bunker. The ball was way below my feet. The pin was on the left side of the green. And, I mean, Tiger walked over and looked at it. I could tell by what he said to Stevie that he thought there was no way to get it up and down. And I hit the best shot of my life. It actually went about eight or nine feet by the hole, and I made the putt coming back. And I think at that moment, Tiger knew I'd do whatever it took to try to win that tournament and uh that was the best shot i ever hit there's a lesson for you tiger don't tell hal sutton what he can't do <laughs> hal, the Ryder cup is a pretty harsh spotlight even as a player particularly so as a captain you served in that role almost 20 years ago now how long did it take you not just to get over the loss but to get over all of the negativity that surrounded the commentary on it uh, I, I don't know that you ever get over that. You know, I walked away from the game after that. I quit golf for five years and didn't even touch a golf club. And, uh, you know, I, I love playing the Ryder Cup. I love the competition of it. Uh, you know, if I were asked again, I won't be to be a captain. But if I were, I'd say no, no, thank you. I'll try to be a player. You know, you've got so many personalities. It's not just the players' personalities that you deal with as a Ryder Cup captain. It's uh, caddies, wives, everybody. Uh, not something I would ever want to do again. During that time frame, you, you have to make tough decisions, and you did even in your captain's picks. You had a couple of them, and you picked 50-year-old Jay Haas. When you look at this setup now, would you put Justin Thomas on the team if you were Zach Johnson? Uh, no need in Hal Sutton's opinion on that because I don't have to make it. And uh, <laughs> it's a tough decision. And good luck, Zach, on doing what you do. You know, I almost picked Hale Irwin, who was older than Jay Oz. And Mike <laughs> should have picked Hale Irwin. <laughs> Nobody would question Hale Irwin's toughness and stomach. No question about that why can't this team win on the road since 1993 the americans have not won on european soil how sudden why is that uh that's a great question i'm not sure anybody has the answer if we had the answer we would all already have solved it uh you know i'm not sure i know golf anymore so <laughs> maybe i shouldn't even say anything <laughs> Hal, we had Rocco mediate on the show last week and we were asking him about what he thinks looking from the Champions Tour back at the PGA Tour and all of the changes going on, the cash arms race that seems to be happening. 
you've been around this game for a long time. What do you look at when you see the tour that you left behind? Oh, that's a great question, and I'm glad you asked me that question. I see a lot of greed, to be honest with you. You know, I wore out two hips and a left knee. Walking to the model of charity is the biggest winner every week. And I pray that the PGA Tour does not lose that. Uh, you know, uh, I was proud to be part of that. I was proud that we weren't trying to get every dollar we could possibly get. But it feels that way now. And, you know, I, I could never imagine saying that I don't love golf. I only play it because I'm good at it. I could never imagine saying that. And uh, it's just a different world. Like I said a second ago, I'm not sure I know golf anymore. Are you concerned? How? Uh, I think I am a little concerned like everybody else should be, you know, and not just with golf, but with our world. <laughs> I mean, it looks like greed is absolutely dominating the world. You listen to politics, you listen to sports, you listen to any of it now. It looks like greed is the word of choice. And greed is not good. How we appreciate your time and candor as always. Uh, it's wonderful catching up with you and thank you for joining us today. All right, appreciate it guys. One of the best. Mm. We're headed to London next. Tom Abbott is taking a break from being a man around town to check in from the AIG Women's Open at Walton Heath. A friend and colleague Tom Abbott joins us now. He'll be on the call from Walton Heath, where he is a member. First of all, I want to know what the hang is like at Walton Heath. You've played hundreds of rounds there. What's it like being a member at Walton Heath? You know, I feel very privileged, Damon, to be a member at Walton. It's uh, it's a grand old golf course in England, and it, it's a tough golf course, um, but it has a really good sort of social scene, I think, uh, that has um, materialized a lot over the last 10 years. The membership is really, really strong, and we're all just very excited to, to have the championship at Walton. We've had many great events in the past, but obviously the first time that the AIG Women's Open has come here, and, and we really couldn't be more thrilled. Tom, the last three Women's Opens have been held at Royal Troon, Carnoustie, and Muirfield. Next year, it's at the Old Course in St. Andrews. To, to a casual observer, Walton Heath might seem like an outlier in that group. Make the case why it's a deserving venue. Well, I think one of the great parts about this championship is that it doesn't have to be played by the seaside. And there are so many great inland courses in the United Kingdom. Um, and in other parts of Europe as well. And I think it's special that we can see these grand venues hosting major championships. And Walton is right up there with uh, some of the best courses in the world. I'm a member, I can say that. But, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's a great golf course for, for championships. And uh, I think if you just take the view that this, this event should be played on Lynx courses, obviously uh, Walton wouldn't be in the mix. Um, but I don't think that's the right attitude for this championship. I think it brings uh, tournament golf to an, a different audience because it's close to London. Um, I think you'll see that it really will stand up as a, a great test of major championship golf, and it's going to challenge the players this week. So 
you know, I think with the way that this championship and the history of this championship, the way it's materialized, uh, playing inland courses is not unusual. And, uh, and Walton Heath is, is one of the best in this country. Speaking of history, Tom, uh, this game has been exclusionary at times, but Walton Heath has had female members right from the very start. What should we know about that history? Well, it's funny. We, we just met with uh, the historian of the club and uh, pro-emeritus and uh, president, Jill Thornhill, who was a, a great amateur player in her own right, a Curtis Cup player and, and, and a women's amateur champion. And we were talking about that. And you go all the way back to the beginning of Walton Heath, um, the women were very much involved. Women were, were full members of the club. And uh, there all, has always been a, a women's section at the club. It's, you know, it's not something that really has, has ever been an issue at Walton Heath. Uh, we've had women's championships. And uh, as we talked about in our meeting, we had a great match between Cecil Leach and Harold Hilton in 1910, uh, which had thousands of spectators coming out to watch at Walton Heath. Uh, so women have always <laughs> been a part of the history and I think, um, I think we are uh, just very excited that we can have this major championship now uh, and, bring, uh, and bring the AIG Women's Open to Walton. The last time I saw you, Tom, we were enjoying a typical British summer day in Liverpool when it was raining in our pockets. What are the prevailing conditions like this week? Well, we've just had such a wet run-up to the championship, Eamon. It's... it's it's been disappointing, actually, because I, I don't think it's in keeping with the way that Walton usually plays, certainly not in the summer. Uh, but on Wednesday last week and on Saturday last week, we had very heavy rain. So the golf course is lush. It's the lushest that I've ever seen it in August. And then today we had another day where it rained on and off, not particularly heavy, but it was just a kind of a miserable English day. And so it's just getting softer and softer it's going to dry out over the next couple of days, um, but we're not going to see the golf course playing the way that it usually would um, at this time of year. Having said that, it's going to look amazing on television because it's going to be very green, and then you've got the purple heather, which is blooming at this, type, uh, this time of year, which will really pop there uh, off the fairway. So I think when you watch it on television, it's going to look magnificent, um, but it's going to play a little soft, and it's going to play very, very long. Um, because of the conditions that we've had. Well, it's been all blue skies for Celine Boutier, back-to-back -back winner on the LPGA, including her first major. What have you learned about Celine over the last few weeks? Well, I've learned that she can really come up with the goods. I mean, she's found something in her game over the last couple of weeks that has put her on a different level. And the way that she handled the pressure on Sunday at the Monday Evian Championship uh, was terrific. I mean, you know, she had that sizable lead and she just maintained it and um, got off to a really good start with those birdies in the early stages. And then obviously going to Scotland and carrying that momentum on was was brilliant. I mean, it's how she was able to keep it together in terms of having uh, the the mental um, strength and being, uh, being being back to full fitness, having had uh, all the pressure of playing on um, on French soil and being exhausted, I would think, after Evian. Uh, and I think we shouldn't underestimate what that meant to French sport, not just French golf, but French sport. Uh, I was there with uh, Jacques Bonger, who was the uh, vice chairman of the event. He's been around sport for a long time. I've never seen him look so nervous 
on Sunday when he was watching Celine and she was on the 18th hole. I said, you know, she's going to win. You know, she, she's never, she's not going to lose this now. And he's like, well, you know, I, I, you know, you never know. You never know. So this really was, um, this really was a momentous day uh, for French sport. And so to then go from that massive high to winning again in Scotland, uh, I think is a tremendous uh, feat that should, uh, that should be up there really with some of the, the great moments, certainly over the last couple of years in, in the women's game, but in the game in general. Um, I don't think she's going to be able to keep it going. I think she's going to be absolutely exhausted this week at Walton, and it's going to be a tough test. I mean, who knows? But I think, um, you know, it, it's not really on her side in terms of having, uh, having the strength to get it done this week. Who knows, though? Lydia Coe said she expects the golf course to play really tough. But Charlie Hull said she actually thinks it's going to be quite <laughs> scorable. And Charlie yeah, has that. some experience on this golf course. Is this a place since the Women's Open has never been held there before that some familiarity with the golf course becomes a little bit of an advantage in your mind this week? Yeah, maybe. I mean, Charlie's been up to Walton quite a few times this year, as she mentioned, and she's played it off the very back tees. And the purple tees, you know, we stretched to close to 7,500 yards if you play it off, off the back tees on the old course. And uh, and so, you know, playing this week at just under 6,900, she said, oh, yeah, it feels pretty short out there. <laughs> Everyone else is saying, no, it's it's really long. I think having the familiarity can only help at Walton Heath, um, knowing the lines off the tees, driving the ball is so important at Walton. You've got to drive the ball well. And so if Charlie can get it going with the driver, she likes Walton. She first came here in 2013 for an outing with Sam Torrance. Um, and she likes tree-lined golf courses. There are some tree-lined holes at Walton, although it wouldn't necessarily be a tree-lined golf course. Um, I, I think she prefers it more so than Lynx golf. She, she's never really been a massive fan of Lynx golf. So I think a lot of people will look to Charlie uh, as a home favorite. Obviously, Georgia Hall is a past champion and playing well this year. But, you know, there's a, there's a feeling that, that we could have an English winner on English soil. I think that would be a really big deal uh, for women's golf in this country. Four LPGA majors down this year, Tom. Four first-time winners. Does that streak continue, or who do you think is most likely to end that streak by winning another major? I think it could continue this week. I mean, you look at people like Heron Yu, who has played very well this year and has sort of been in final groups and knocking on the door for a win. I look at Angel Yin uh, as a player who could go well here. She's a big hitter. Um, which is really going to help off the tee. And if she gets her groove going, we know that you know, she's, she's going to win at some stage. She was close to winning the Chevron Championship. But equally so, um, surely this experience is going to count for something here. And, um, and I think when you look at that, you look at the established players. But over the, what is it, 21 different winners in the last 22 majors. I think it's only Minji Lee that is a multiple major champion, and she's somebody who could win at Walton. There's no, no doubt about it. She's staying uh, with a, a host family here, members of the club. With her brother stays with them when he's come to play in the U.S. Open qualifier in, in past years. So that's kind of a nice connection for her. And so I think... You know, when you look at Walton Heath, you think it could be an established winner that would go well because you need to think your way around the golf course. But equally, the, the depth of talent on the LPGA Tour is, is to such an extent that we're seeing these different winners of majors time and time again. And it's a bit of a head-scratcher, head really.
Well, Tom, come Sunday night. You get your club back and hopefully your favorite spot at the bar. Enjoy this special week for you, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. I'm really looking forward to it. Up next, we're joined by the leadership of the PGA of America after a PGA memo citing opposition to the USGA and RNA's proposed model local rule regarding distance. That conversation coming up on Golf Today. on golf today the alliance of pgas which includes the pga of america sent a memo to golf's governing bodies the usga and rna pushing back on the proposed model local rule to potentially roll back the golf ball saying in part to consider pushing back the implementation of any rollback until past the currently contemplated dates the memo says in part we believe this to be the best approach towards a truly collaborative industry proposal and potential alternatives to the thorny challenges of bifurcation. It will also allow the time to arrive at a consensus on the proper data to consider as the game grows and evolves. The USGA statement in response to that memo from the World Alliance of PGAs said we remain in a notice and comment period accepting feedback from voices from across the game. The PGA is an important stakeholder and we appreciate the feedback they have contributed to this conversation. And we're going to talk about this a little more now with John Lindert, who is the president of the PGA of America and the CEO of the organization, Seth Waugh. John, let me start with you. The, what was the process and decision to get to this joint issuance of a memo from the Alliance of PGAs? Well, we actually all met at Hoylake uh, during the Open Championship, and this has been a process that is new. We've uh, collaborated with the other PGAs just recently, and we share, you know, we share commonalities. And so we wanted to kind of get together, share th some of our thoughts, share some of our challenges, and talk about the game as a whole. We are, are at the end of the day, we're operators, we're the, the people that uh, steward the game, we grow the game, we instruct players, and so we share our, our common challenges. And one of them was this potential rollback. We are we are the individuals that would be charged with implementing this rule. And, you know, we see a variety of different challenges. You know, I brought up the fact that I have two young men that I coach who play collegiate golf. And for me to have them come and work at my facility, I would have to have two different types of range balls. That poses a challenge on both me and, uh, and our facility. So, you know, that was kind of the, the, the impetus to this was just trying to get together share common views, share thoughts, and, and talk about our challenges. Seth, we focus a lot on the professional game. The memo says you solicited feedback, did the PJ, of golfers from all different levels in the game and also owners and operators as well. What have you heard? Is there a consensus that you've heard in this issue? Yeah, you know, it's a complicated issue, right? And and I'm not, none of us are saying that it's universal, right? And that's why it's a debate. And I think reasonable minds can differ on uh, on complicated issues. And and I think you're seeing that. Um, I do think the USGA and the RNA have run, you know, a, a very fair, very open, very lengthy process. And frankly, this is just a continuation. I, I'm, I guess I'm a little surprised that there was surprise that we had, um, you know, that, that we have comments. Uh, this is a comment period. We've invited to do so, and that's what we've done. So in the period of that, we've talked to kind of everybody we can think of, certainly talked to the professional players. Uh, we've talked to our own members as much as we possibly can. Uh, as John said, we've uh, got a consensus among the globe, um, and we thought that writing a joint letter uh, 
A was probably more powerful and more meaningful, but importantly, I think better for the for the governing bodies to have kind of one voice rather than you know a dozen uh, separate voices. So yeah, we've talked to operators, we've talked to day to day players. Um, anecdotally, I've talked to lots of the media, including you two, about it. Um, and uh, you know, we've come to the conclusion that bifurcation is a slippery slope. It's changes the game kind of forever. It's a bit of a you know, uh, tricky kind of Pandora's box that once you open it, um, it it's changed um, forever in a lot of ways. And, and that, you know, it looks good on paper, perhaps, but in practice, as John says, there's all sorts of complications. And our professionals around the world are the ones that would have to police it, uh, manage it, uh, and, uh, and deal with it. And we also think there's a fundamental um, and you talked about it yesterday, Damon, in one of yours, the aspirational aspect of it. We can now compare ourselves to the best in the world. I'm not hitting the same driver as Rory because it wouldn't help me, obviously. Uh, but, you know, we know that what a 340-yard drive kind of means, right, um, or a 195-yard 7-iron. And that's extraordinary and, and something that's unique to the game. We play on the same field, obviously, different tees, but um, we think that's pretty fundamental to the game. Seth, for the sake of clarity here, is the objection to the modified local rule in effect bifurcating the rules, or is it an objection to the idea of doing anything about distance with the golf ball period? Uh, it's the, the former uh, more. Um, like, again, we think you know, if, if it was up to us, we probably wouldn't do anything. Um, you know, as you saw in the memo, Game's never been in better shape. It's booming, um, and there is, a, as we've all talked about too much, there's an existential threat going on. So the timing's hard. That is not the governing body's fault. That, that's just uh, you know history uh, happening uh, in the middle of this. They've certainly you know had it out there for a long time, uh, and so you know we say that we do this and collaborate um, and have. So there you know we've certainly had this conversation with both Martin and Mike, and I've had it personally, we've had it, you know, institutionally, uh, and we'll continue to, to do that and, and, and continue to try to work collaboratively to find, you know, the best possible solution here. Um, we're not trying to put our head in the sand uh, at all, but we do think bifurcation is, again, a slippery slope uh, and one that we don't, you know, sort of agree with. And, uh, and you know, if there is... You know, we suggest time in the memo. Uh, there's certainly some moderation you could have as well um, that may be something that, uh, that works best for the overall game and the industry. John, the memo says that the USGA and RNA data is conflicting and confusing. How so? Well, I think it depends on, on what report you look at. I mean, obviously, it states about the, the yardage, the average driving distance going up year over year over year. Yet that's one report, and you get another report from manufacturers that shows a different set of data altogether. So having this unified data is extremely important. I think that's the that's the crux of a little bit of this of this letter. There's so many different um, data points that are out there stating different things that I think it's it really is important to have a third party analyze this and come up with one set of data. John, would you? kind of support this idea then of rolling back <clears throat> excuse me the golf ball for everyone if it's just simply the idea of bifurcating the, the rules is the issue and there isn't consistency for all players 
that, that you're teaching and all recreational players is the answer to that that everyone plays the same golf ball but that golf ball happens to have some restrictions placed on it was that question to me you broke up a little yes bit. it was to you john yeah 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 well i think i think when you talk to manufacturers the golf ball right now is virtually at a limit and so if you draw a line in the sand today i just i don't think we want to hurt the recreational game as seth said the game of golf is at a, an all-time high why take a step backwards I think if we draw a line in the sand, we go forward from here. Any additional distances would be attributed to athletic ability. And um, I think that that might be okay. But once again, the bifurcation is the huge part. I don't know that the golf ball needs to be rolled back to the numbers that the USGA and RNA are, are currently presenting. 127 mile an hour ball speed, 11 degree launch, 2200 backspin rate. That might be a little bit of a, of a leap from where we are today. But the golf ball today seems to be fine. Seth, conventional wisdom might say that the men and women who set up golf courses for championships and tournament competition are pulling their collective hair out trying to keep up with distance. What do you hear from Kerry Hay, who sets up the PGA Championship and who's one of the best in the business? Yeah, I mean, look, we, <laughs> I think, as you say, Kerry is the best in the business. He's going to deal with whatever the rules are that, that he has to deal with and, and find the, the best possible champion. Um, you know, there are certain, you know, courses that, that might have some issues uh, from time to time. And then you set it up in different ways uh, that, um, uh, you know, with pin positions or, uh, or rough or whatever, you know, it is that, that will challenge the best players in the world. Um, and so, you know, we're not, we're not troubled with, with our past venues or our future venues being able to deal with the, the current technology, the current you know quality of the players, to crown great champions. These the players are so good now, uh, frankly, that um, you know protecting par has become a bit of a fantasy, uh, and um, and so uh, we you know we don't have a, a set number in mind. We're not trying to protect par. We're trying to find the best champion and create. You know the fairest test, given the, the conditions, the weather, uh, and um, you know the golf course that we're that we're presenting on. Um, we we are hugely, totally committed to throwing the best championship on earth, uh, and we'll continue to strive to do that in every way that we can. Seth, the memo you signed yesterday lists a lot of concerns that the organizations have raised. I think eight in total. What would you say to people who's argument would be these can all be resolved, that action needs to happen now, and that you're simply guilty of a delaying tactic? You know, uh, even as I said earlier, it's a, look, it's a complicated issue, and people can, reasonable people can differ on it. I certainly have friends that are on the other side of this, and, and people that I uh, respect. Uh, and so uh, what we are saying is uh, that, you know, again, bifurcation changes the game forever. And, and that's not something that, that we're uh, that we are are behind at this point. Uh, and that um, yeah, we can police it all, but it is complicated. You know, John's mentioned a couple of them. You know, we've come up in the past that what if somebody plays the, the restricted ball all year to sort of bump up their handicap and then plays with the, the non-restricted ball in a in a tournament and there's just it, there's just all these unintended consequences that I think we really need to think through 
uh, which is why you know we're, we're suggesting time is is a bit of our friend here, particularly while you know the the game is booming in in the way that it is. Um, you know, again, it's not the USGA or the RNA's fault that that you know that we are in this boom and that we do have you know this controversy in the game, but you do have to call sort of audibles when when things change, and and I think that's where you know, we view it to be. Uh, and again, we're, we're engaging the, the you know, the, the industry is not at war. You, you, you all have heard me talk about how collaborative we are, how cooperative we are, how we think about the industry as one. Um, and I think, you know, having, uh, a, a solution that everybody can kind of get behind and that's probably not, you know, anyone's perfect solution, uh, is something that we should be striving for. And, and I think, I hope that's where we all go as an industry. You know, we're just we're just being part of a process. Um, we've spoken to them. We've now written something more formally, uh, and um, and we look forward to engaging and, and working towards the best possible solution. Complicated issue in a complex time, gentlemen. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, guys. Thanks for reporting Thank on us. Thank you. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.